does God exist? I hope you won't be disappointed if I say that that's a question that can't be settled adequately in a short talk. I won't even try, really. What I'll do instead is less ambitious, but I hope helpful nonetheless. I'll explore the possibilities and the limits. Uh, sorry, I lost my place. I'll just explore the possibilities and the limits for using philosophy to learn about God's existence. Since this is organized by the Thomistic Institute, you won't be surprised to hear that I'll be presenting things in a way that, um, that coincides with Thomas Aquinas's approach. But I won't be doing this because I was uh, invited by the Thomistic Institute. Instead, I'll be doing it because I think it makes good sense. Here's the order in which I'll be presenting things. First, I will give a brief sense of what philosophy is in the first place. Second, I'll give brief discussions of reasons for believing in God other than as a result of philosophical argumentation. Third, I'll discuss the idea of believing in God on the basis of philosophical argumentation. Fourth, I'll consider the following question. If we have used philosophy to provide philosophical reasons for believing in God, what comes next, philosophically speaking? Fifth, I will briefly look at objections to God's existence. Sixth, I will point out the limitations of philosophy when it comes to God. Okay, so section one. Here's a quick account of what philosophy is. It's the use of reason, unaided by divine revelation, to investigate the most foundational questions. In saying unaided by divine revelation, I mean that philosophy doesn't rely on the Bible or on any other revelation from God, but instead just tries to figure things out by human reason alone. What I mean by saying the most foundational questions can be explained as follows. If I ask you what the present tense of jump is, you will tell me that it's, sorry, if I ask you what the past tense of jump is, you will tell me that it's jumped. If I ask you why it's jumped and not jump, you will tell me something about two types of verb in English strong and weak verbs. If I ask you what a verb is, you will say something about action or something like that. If I ask you what words are, you will say something about sounds that express thoughts or whatever. The relevant point here is simply that my questions keep getting at more and more basic or foundational questions. They keep getting deeper and deeper. The deeper or more foundational of question is, the more philosophical it is. Probably there's no precise line between the questions that are philosophical and the questions that are not. But if you get as far as asking whether God exists, you are clearly in philosophy territory. So the question is whether we can know that God exists and whether we can know it solely on the basis of natural human reasoning powers. 
Now, the purpose of this talk is to think about how we might come to believe in God on the basis of philosophical argumentation, but partly for the sake of completeness and partly for the sake of contrast, I want to indicate some of the ways we might come to believe in God other than by philosophical argumentation. The fact that they aren't the same as philosophical argumentation doesn't, automa doesn't automatically make them bad, of course. They have their strengths and their weaknesses, but I'm not gonna say a lot about that here. One way we might come to believe in God non-philosophically would be by accepting God's existence on human authority. The authority of our parents, for example, or on the basis of the fact that nearly all humans have believed in God in some sense. Relying on the authority of others isn't always wrong. For, some, for, for one thing, sometimes there's just no alternative. But from the philosophical standpoint, it's a rather weak kind of support. Another way we might come to believe in God, again, non-philosophically, would be on the basis of experience of God. Somehow, in some way, I have had an, an encounter with God and thereby come to know that he exists and even perhaps something of what he is like. The question of whether we can experience God is an extremely complicated one. If God is what Christians say, then we can't experience God by our um, natural powers, because God totally transcends those powers. Think of ultraviolet radiation, which falls outside what human vision can see. Or think of the Earth's magnetic field, which sea turtles can sense, but which we cannot. Well, God is outside of our experience, but in a much more radical way. Therefore, if people can experience God, it's only because God himself has intervened to make this possible. We can't just spot God. He has to make his presence available to us. Now then, whether this can happen and what to make of it when it does is an important question. But again, it falls outside the topic of this lecture. Obviously, we can reflect philosophically on the possibility of experiencing God. That's what we're doing right now. And we can reflect on what such experiences might mean. But all of that would be reflection on the basis of something that happened supernaturally. And therefore, it's not really philosophy in the sense outlined earlier. A third way we might come to believe in God would be through divine faith. By this, I mean accepting something on God's own authority. He reveals it and therefore we accept it, and we are moved to do so by God's own operation on our mind and will. God teaches us something, and he also moves us to accept his teaching on his say-so, rather than because we can conclusively see it for we can conclusively see it for ourselves. Faith, in this sense, is the starting point for the science of theology, which is standardly defined as faith-seeking understanding. We accept things on faith, and then we go on to reflect on them in the hope of understanding them better. 
The idea that there could be faith in this sense is far from crazy, in my opinion. And if there is faith in this sense, then obviously it would be a great thing to have it. What more reliable starting point could there be than revelation from God? But I'm not going to say much more about it in this talk because accepting things on divine faith is not a philosophical method of inquiry. Third point, I want now to address the question of believing in God's existence on the basis of philosophical argument. Can we come to believe in God without relying on divine revelation or any other authority and without having had any spiritual or mystical experiences, but simply on the basis of philosophical reasoning? One approach would be to start with a definition or conception of God, and then come to the realization that God is just the sort of thing that must exist, that it's self-contradictory to suppose that God does not exist. To put the argument in a very crude form, think of this. If the word God means a perfect being, then obviously God must exist, because otherwise he wouldn't be perfect, in which case he wouldn't be God. As I say, this is not a very sophisticated version of the argument. Better versions are available, but Aquinas thinks that even in a good version, arguments like this don't work. Aquinas's strategy is different. For one thing, he does not start from a definition of God at all. Aquinas thinks that we can't really get an adequate definition of God's essence. God is too transcendent, too far above us for that to work. Instead of reasoning from definition to existence, Aquinas reasons from effect to cause. Now, obviously we reason from effect to cause all the time. If your window breaks, you reason that something must have struck your window. For example, a baseball or a rock. The window breaking is the effect and the rock hitting it is the cause. Well, Aquinas uses roughly this sort of reasoning to arrive at the existence not of rocks, but of God. He actually offers a number of different arguments in a number of different works, but all or anyway most of them fit this general structure of reasoning from effect to cause. Here's an example of that kind of argument. The world exists, so therefore the maker of the world exists, and that's God. Is this a good argument? No, it is not a good argument. It's a bad argument, but why is it a bad argument? You might say it's a bad argument, because we cannot reason from effects to causes in the first place. That is a super radical reason for objecting to the argument. Such an argument blocks not only arguments from the world to God, but also arguments from broken windows to rocks. An objection like this undercuts not just arguments about God, but almost all the reasoning found in science, engineering, and everyday life. I'm not going to talk about that radical skepticism here. 
I'm going to take it for granted that we can reason from effects to causes. The mere fact that we can reason from effects to causes doesn't mean there's no difficulty in arguing for God's existence. There's a special problem that needs to be dealt with. The problem is that when you reason from effect to cause in the ordinary way, you arrive at a conclusion like this. There is a, ca uh, there is a cause and it is the sort of thing that could produce the effect that we started from. So for example, if something breaks your window, you can infer that it had sufficient kinetic energy to break your window. But you can't infer more than that. And you especially can't infer that what broke your window had infinite power. Perhaps you can see how this applies to arguments for the existence of God. The argument as given earlier went like this. The world exists, therefore the world maker exists. Now in order to make the world, a world maker would have to be pretty impressive. It would have to be very intelligent and very powerful. But we're supposed to be arguing for the existence of God. We're supposed to be arguing for the existence of something that is infinitely intelligent and infinitely powerful. Because our world is finite, the fact that a world maker made it doesn't prove that the world maker is infinite. But that means that we haven't proved that our world maker is God. What's more, how do we know that the world maker doesn't have a maker of its own? Little children ask this question all the time, but who made God? In other words, if there's a world maker, why isn't there a world maker maker? This question is important because if there is a world maker maker, then the world maker is not God. We've been looking at the argument that goes, there's a world, therefore there's a world maker, and that's God. You've probably guessed by now that Aquinas' arguments do not go like that. Thomistic style arguments are indeed arguments from effect to cause, but they don't say merely that when there's an effect, there must be a cause. They argue that when there are effects and causes, there must ultimately be an ultimate cause, not just a cause, but an uncaused cause. This is how you arrive at the existence of God. So how do you argue for an uncaused cause? Roughly, very roughly, you argue like this. Things around us have causes. A, let us say, is caused by B. To put it the other way around, B is the cause of A. Now B might itself have a cause, C. If so, then B isn't just a cause of A, it's a caused cause of A. And of course, C, B's cause, might in turn have its own cause, D, in which case C would also be a caused cause. This pattern can be extended. D might be caused by E, and E might be caused by F. 
but it cannot go on forever. At some point, you have to reach an uncaused cause. The crux of it all is the claim that it can't go on forever. Why not? Why can't we have an effect that comes from a cause that comes from a cause backwards forever? The reason is that caused causes depend on their causes. And it's not possible for everything that exists to be dependent. Ultimately, there has to be something independent. Without that, there literally wouldn't be anything at all. Let me provide some, some images or metaphors to make this more concrete. First, think of light shining from a mirror. Well, mirrors don't just shine all by themselves. They only reflect light that is shined on them. In short, they need to be illuminated. Now, a mirror can reflect light that comes from another mirror. This happens all the time, actually. But it can't go on like this forever. If it's just mirrors all the way back, then you'd have nothing but darkness. You need something that doesn't just reflect light, but that emits it as a source. At some point, you need a light bulb or the sun. You need an unilluminated illuminator. Second, think of a train car in motion. Train cars don't just move. They need to be pulled. A train car can, of course, be pulled by another train car. That happens all the time. But it can't go on like this forever. It can't be train cars all the way down the line. At some point, you need a locomotive, the engine. You need an unpulled puller. It's okay then for a cause to be dependent, but it's not okay for every cause to be dependent. Think of it this way. Suppose we agree that I am going to buy your computer. I say that I'd like you to give it to me right now and I'll give you 500 euros tomorrow. Suspicious, you ask me to show you the 500 euros. Well, I say, I don't have it right now, but I will be borrowing it from my brother. Suspicious, you ask my brother to show you the 500 euros. Well, he doesn't have it right now, but he will be borrowing it from his poker buddy. It's okay if it goes back like this for five more steps or even for 500 more steps, but at some point, someone actually has to have the 500 euros. Not everyone can be borrowing. It's okay to borrow from someone who is himself borrowing, but somewhere down the line, there has to be a lender who isn't himself a borrower. There has to be a source that doesn't itself receive from some prior source. The guy with the 500 euros, I mean the guy who actually has it in his hands, he is different from all the other guys. The other guys, even if they are lenders, are also borrowers. But the guy with the money 
is a non-borrowing lender. He's a creditor who isn't a debtor. He actually owns the money. He's like a light bulb rather than a mirror. He's like a locomotive rather than a train car. So the series ends in something very different from all of the other things in the series. We've been exploring analogies that were meant to get you thinking about the difference between caused and uncaused causes. But they are only analogies. Light bulbs, locomotives, and guys with 500 euros are uncaused relative to mirrors, boxcars, and borrowers. But in truth, they too are themselves caused causes. A truly uncaused cause would be far more different from other things. The fact that the argument ends in something so very different, very, very, very different, that is what opens up the possibility that the argument ends with God. The argument ends not just with a cause and not just with an uncaused cause, relatively speaking, but with what is absolutely speaking, a truly uncaused cause. Aquinas says, and this everyone calls God. Just to be clear, let me say, I have not given a full blown version of any of Aquinas' arguments for God. At most, I've gestured at some of them. There isn't time here to go into all the details. But what I've said does, I hope, give some sense of the general structure and strategy that Aquinas employs. I have said that Aquinas ends his arguments by saying, and this all men call God. Maybe you think that's too fast. An uncaused cause is admittedly much more than just a world maker. For example, since it's uncaused, we already have an answer to the question, who made it? Namely, if you ask that question, it shows that you didn't understand. It's uncaused, so nothing made it. But still, maybe we are not yet in a good position to call this being God. The mere fact that something is an uncaused cause might not be enough for that. And that leads to the next section of the talk. Suppose you have spent months and years doing enough reading and thinking and discussing to conclude that some version of a causal argument is sound. Maybe you've concluded that Aquinas' arguments work in the form that he gave them. Or maybe you've concluded that they work in slightly improved versions. Maybe you've concluded that Aquinas' arguments have massive flaws, but that some other causal argument works. Anyway, what next? Before answering that, let me mention that if Aquinas' arguments turned out to be bad, he would not be mad at you for pointing this out. On the contrary, he would thank you. For one thing, he holds that if someone gives a bad argument for God, 
we shouldn't act as if everything is okay because at least they're on the right team. We should refute that argument, Aquinas says, lest people think that belief in God is based on this bad reason. For another thing, Aquinas would thank you because you would have helped him get closer to the truth. This is the really great thing about admitting that you are in error. The instant you admit it, you aren't in error anymore. Anyway, suppose you have found a good argument that arrives at the existence of an uncaused cause, an unreceiving source, something like that. What next? What comes next, philosophically speaking? Well, the short answer to this question is, you have to keep thinking. Maybe that's good advice in general, although not always. But it has a special meaning here. If you think you've proved the existence of God, you still won't have proved everything you might want to prove about God. It's tempting to think things like this. There is an un changed cause of change. Therefore, God exists. His son Jesus is my personal savior. The Catholic Church is here to provide me with the fullness of the means of salvation. But actually, if you think about it, all that stuff goes way, way beyond the mere idea that there's an uncaused cause. Even though Aquinas does use the word God, at the end of his arguments for the existence of God. All he means by God at that point is the bare idea of an uncaused cause. That's all that he has proved so far. Alternatively, if you think that Aquinas has gone too fast and it's not right to call the uncaused cause God, that gives you even more reason to keep thinking you want to go on to learn something more about this extraordinary being. It might turn out to be so extraordinary that it's worthy of being called God. The point is that the proofs only prove so much. There's an awful lot that they haven't proved. By the time he has finished giving proofs for God, Aquinas hasn't explicitly proved that this uncaused cause brought us into existence out of nothing. He has not proved that the uncaused cause loves us. Some of Aquinas' arguments leave open the possibility that God doesn't even know that we exist. For all we know at this point, this God thing is just some kind of force. Now, of course, Aquinas does think that God has a, has a mind. He does think that God created us and all of that. But Aquinas believes those things only because of further logical reasoning. Each new point requires its own logical argument. In fact, it takes Aquinas 50 pages of highly compressed writing in small print to arrive at the conclusion that there's only one God. How does Aquinas take all those extra steps? Well, to answer that question, I'd have to go through all of them. And that would keep us here for hours and hours. But I will make one very small point. To a significant extent, the further reasoning that Aquinas goes through 
is the unfolding of the idea of God he arrived at in the original arguments. What the arguments have in common is that God is where things come to a stop. It's where the buck stops. He's not just a cause. He's an uncaused cause. He gives, but what he gives, he didn't receive from somewhere else. He didn't receive it from anywhere else because just by his very nature, he already had it. To put it differently, he's completely perfect. From that insight, Aquinas is able to go on to argue for lots of things about God. If God is perfect, then he needs to have a mind, for example. So while it's true, as I said earlier, that Aquinas' arguments don't really give us a well-developed idea of a personal God, they do contain the seeds of that idea. And Aquinas gets those seeds to grow by further reflection. All right, five. Now I want to say a brief word about objections to God. For Aquinas, as for most medieval philosophers and theologians, it's standard operating procedure not merely to state one's views and not merely to give arguments for one's views, but also to state objections to one's views and to answer those objections. Just think of what the world would be like if politicians did that. Aquinas lists two objections to God's existence, and they are probably the two most important ones. First, that there's evil in the world, and that that's enough to prove that there is no God. Second, that we don't need to believe in God because we already have good enough explanations of everything. In a way, Aquinas's answer to the second objection is already lurking in his arguments in favor of God. Aquinas thinks it's false that we can give ultimate explanations of everything without appealing to God. Of course, we can give explanations of things without talking about God. But those explanations involve appealing to beings that themselves need explanation because they are explanations that involve appealing to caused causes. When we have done something like that, we have indeed given an explanation, but we haven't given an ultimate explanation. As for the first objection, Aquinas's answer goes well beyond anything contained in his arguments for God's existence. When he says, in the what he says in the particular text that I'm concerned with is short but deep. Someone who thinks that evil is an objection to God apparently thinks that the only proper way for God to deal with evil would be for God to destroy it. But Aquinas thinks that there's another alternative. God can allow evil to exist, but then draw a greater good out of it. There is a lot packed into that thought, but at the very least, it shows that the topic of God and evil is more complicated than it, than it might initially appear to be. It is indeed a mysterious idea that God might allow evil rather than just snuff it out. 
But it seems far too quick to say that the existence of evil simply disproves God's existence, just like that. Six. Aquinas's way of doing philosophy can get you some pretty substantial results. It can get you to the idea that God is good, that God is an immaterial spirit. That's going to be important for you all later on. That he is all-powerful, that he knows everything, that he created everything, that he guides everything, and so on. It might even get you to the idea that you should love and reverence God and pray to him. However, it has to be admitted that it would still be a pretty cold and abstract and philosophical sort of religion. No burning bush, no crossing of the Red Sea, no return from captivity in Babylon, no Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, no sending of the apostles to the whole world. So this philosophical approach won't get you to anything that most people would call religion. It's a philosophical religion, but it's not, you know, a religion religion. For Aquinas, that requires getting beyond philosophy by accepting God's revelation. Revelation goes beyond human reason. It tells us things that we could never prove on our own. And it gives us utter confidence about things that would otherwise just be based on our own potentially flawed philosophical reasoning. It might be objected that relying on revelation is acting like a weakling. Shouldn't we do things under our own power? To that, I think Aquinas would give two answers. First of all, if God really is God, then he's so far above us that it's ludicrous to think we could have a good understanding of him just on the basis of our own powers. Second, humans are weak and flawed. And if Aquinas says so, that counts for something because very few human beings have ever been as smart and hardworking as he. So maybe humans are pretty limited, in which case it would make sense for them to rely on divine help if they can get it. In any case, whether you accept the possibility of divine help or not, it's worthwhile being aware not only of the strengths of philosophical reasoning, but also of their limitations. Anything else would be unphilosophical. So let me conclude with a few concluding remarks. As you can tell from what's been said, Aquinas thinks that philosophical reason has a lot of power to learn about the existence and nature of God. At the same time, he also thinks that philosophical reason has serious limits. Some of those limits are practical. Philosophy takes a lot of time. It's easy to make mistakes. Some of those limits are limits in principle. God so transcends the human mind that many important truths about God simply cannot be discovered by humans without divine revelation. It's important to see both the power and the limits of philosophical reason. If all we see are the limits, 
then we will think that there can't really be any dialogue between Christian believers and non-believers. Religion to us would be exclusively based on faith, and those who aren't believers would seem to have no access to God in any way unless they had accepted divine revelation. There's another problem if philosophy has nothing to say about God. Of course, divine revelation is adequate, but it might not always be adequate for us. Revelation is hard to understand. Sometimes the Bible makes you think that God is an immaterial spirit, and then you turn the page and you read something about God's holy arm, not to mention his footstool. Philosophical reason can help us come up with intellectually solid and rigorous interpretations of scripture, which sometimes uses a lot of figurative and metaphorical language. Again, the point isn't that the Bible needs philosophy, but that philosophy helps us understand the Bible. Cardinal Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict, said once that it wasn't coincidence, but divine providence, that the Son of God became incarnate at a time and place when philosophy had made enough progress so that people could have a solid understanding of what had occurred. Having praised philosophy, both for its ability to give us access to God without revelation and for its ability to help us understand revelation, let me now end with a reminder that it has its limits. St. Augustine compared the philosopher without faith to a traveler who is on the top of a hill and who can from there catch a glimpse of where he needs to go, but who can't figure out how to get there. Only through revelation as a guide can we actually find the right path. So I think that Aquinas would say this, philosophy is important, but it's not enough to tell you everything you need to know, and especially not the most important things you need to know. Thank you.